So it says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Everyone say apostles. Apostles. Okay, need to remember that word. Simon, whom he named Peter. Does anyone know the Aramaic for Peter from last week? See first, I like it. Um, His brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Last week we started our examination of the character Peter, and uh, we may remember that his shadow cast over people, and and, uh, uh, it was suggested there were healings from that. And so we find uh, Jesus similarly uh, um, boiling with power, it seems, and, and healings happening quite frivolously. And then it says this in verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I wonder when the last time you leapt for joy was. And when the last time you were persecuted and then leapt for joy as a result of that. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Okay, so on Tuesday in the home group that meets at my house, uh, we were talking uh, through Jared Cooper's Stronger book. Uh, we got these few house groups and they've been sort of going through it. Um, ours has been going at sort of uh, a snail's pace through it. And uh, we were talking at uh, a point about the brain activity and, and about what goes on inside our heads. And it seems, and uh, I'm not a neuroscientist or even a scientist really, so um, I, my expertise has been gleaned uh, from what others uh, experts have said. Um, But it seems that thoughts in the brain are essentially kind of information pathways that connect different parts of the brain. So your brain's sort of uh, uh, ticking over and there are these sort of thoughts that are activities uh, between two parts. And the more you think the same thing, the more a root is carved out in your brain. Now scientists, I realise, might change their mind about this next week. Uh, and because that's what science does, you know, it, it goes along with the best evidence it has. But it seems that this is how brain activity works, that uh, thoughts are essentially these movements of um, information uh, along pathways. And the more you think the same thing, 
the stronger that pathway gets. It's a bit like uh, using a muscle. You know, the more you use the muscle, the, the stronger it gets. And, and it seems the same is to be said of the thoughts in our brain. The more we think something, the stronger that pathway in our brain is and the more we tend to resort to it. Um, And it means that eventually, if you keep thinking the same things, you can do stuff without it um, uh, sort of affecting your conscious thought. You can do stuff without consciously uh, being deliberate about it. So some of us can walk and talk without sticking our tongue out in that sort of childish sense of deliberate thought. We can do all sorts of things because those pathways are so well established that we don't have to really concentrate on them. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? Okay, so as far as scientific evidence goes, that seems to be how it works. So... What happens is, it's not just a positive thing. So some of us have learned to talk and walk, and some of us can do it at the same time, um, which is uh, an amazing feat. But it also means that when negative things happen to us, we can resort to very familiar pathways. For instance, trouble can strike that... Uh, worrisome sort of bill drops um, in your email inbox nowadays. I realise there are very few uh, sort of posts. And you start to bite your nails. It, it, it becomes a uh, this habit that you've got into many moons back and then you resort to it again and again. And this happens uh, with uh, um, other things as well. So... Pressure can strike, whether it's opportunity or sort of negative circumstance, and we can become irritable. You know, something, your car blows up and you become irritable. Has anyone ever experienced that? You, something goes wrong and you become irritable. At my uh, place of work, something goes wrong and people resort to swearing. I don't know what it is. It's like a safety valve, but they, they seem, uh, it seems fit when something goes wrong that they uh, just start swearing. Uh, other people, they get impatient and uh, uh, they start to um, have very little tolerance for anyone else who's slow of thought or uh, word or deed. Some of us have an increased appetite. We drink and we eat. Things bad happen, and so we look for comfort in food and drink, and it becomes a sort of self-reinforcing thing that goes on, and that pathway becomes stronger in our brains. In the account that we've just read of Luke, there is a pressure on Jesus to choose some particular characters, some primary people to carry on his message. He has got a large group of disciples that love him and follow him, but he feels this need to choose a select few who will have um, a, a special dispensation from him. There is this word, can you anyone remember what I asked you to repeat in the, uh, to the beginning of 
uh, Luke 6, the word was apostle. Um, and um, basically, the word um, apostolos is just Greek for messenger or uh, courier. It's a, it was a sort of very, very everyday word that, that people used probably the same as deliveroo or, or, or something like that. And so Jesus felt that he needed to uh, select some particular messengers for his word. And we find, wonderfully, that when Jesus is uh, faced with a difficult situation, he doesn't resort to swearing or biting his nails. He doesn't raid the larder for the next pack of Oreo biscuits or uh, open a can of Heineken. He doesn't um, get stressed and impatient with the other guys. He resorts to prayer. Everyone say prayer. 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 So this seems to be a neural pathway that's very well established and very strong in Jesus' mind. When temptation comes in Scripture, he goes towards prayer. When um, uh, the pressure of teaching comes, he goes towards prayer. When the prospect of crucifixion comes, where does he go? Excellent. Some of you are paying attention. Can I suggest to you this morning that this is an excellent neuropathway discipline. It is perfectly possible that when you are faced with pressure, when you are faced with stress, when you are faced with worry, when you are faced with opportunity or something negative, that you can develop this habit of praying, and the more you do it, the more second nature it will be. This morning... um, I was getting slightly agitated with my children because we weren't going to make church at the time that I like to come here. Um, And my children can pick that up. And um, Sophia looked at me with her her big round eyes and says, Daddy, shall I pray that uh, we arrive on church on time? And I was like, no, you need to get your coat on and your shoes on and we need to gather. And I was like, no, okay, we'll we'll, we'll pray. Um, And uh, so... um, Maybe it's too late for me, but my kids and um, Paisley, uh, wherever Kirsty is, uh, uh, perhaps the uh, next generation, we're going to learn this neuropathway of not biting your nails or starting to get drunk when it all goes wrong, but pray. And so I want to suggest this morning that it's a neural habit that is offered to everyone, that when stuff happens, that you resort to prayer rather than getting agitated and shouting at your children. Anyway, emerging from this time of concerted prayer, and he seems to have prayed all night, um, and some of us can't even do our sort of half night of prayer, so praying all night is is quite a big deal. Um, But Jesus obviously felt it was an important moment, so he prays all night with his, spends all night with his heavenly father in prayer, and he chooses 12 men as apostles. Everyone say apostles. I'm just going to keep that word just at the uh, uh, tip of your tongue and the, the, the top of your brain. I suggest to you this morning that these apostles weren't just Jesus' best best mates. They weren't just his BFFs. Like uh, some of us have got like different spheres of uh, mates, ones that we're just all right to and perhaps ones we share sort of more intimate details. This is not what the apostles were. 
They are much more important than this. They had a formal importance that if you interrogate the scriptures, it will come out to you. It is no coincidence that the number of apostles is equivalent to the number of tribes in Israel in the Old Testament. How many tribes were there? How many apostles were there? Oh, I see. Mark 3 has these apostles chosen, and Jesus there says, you are peculiarly equipped to preach and heal the troubled people. That these 12 were seen to be given something special to bring to the people around them. In Matthew 19, and and this really ups the stakes, in Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking to the uh, 12 apostles, and he says, you guys are going to sit on your own thrones, and you are going to be with me at the final judgment. And there's this thing like, oh, these 12 aren't just randomly selected. They aren't Jesus's BFF, who he sort of WhatsApps uh, particularly closely with. There's something more significant than that. And it's interesting, at the beginning of Acts, one of the disciples doesn't quite make it. Anyone know his name? Judas. Judas. Excellent. Um, And so they work hard to find another one. Because the 12 disciples are important. And then, and you'll find this repeated again and again in the scriptures, you will find that there is this guy called Paul who's written off your New Testament, he keeps going on about being an apostle himself. There is this illustrious group that Jesus chooses um, that kind of were with him, and Paul goes, I am one of those as if abnormally born. I am part of that illustrious group, even though I wasn't there during Jesus' earthly teaching and he goes on and on and you will find and it gets a little bit tiresome I'm like come on Paul you've made it into the Bible you're fine but he keeps going on about I am an apostle too I have the same uh, um, prominence as these other guys particularly uh, Peter so I want you to think um, of all the things that I've just said and bear them in mind as we move on and finally after what's it, like a good hour of prevaricating, we are finally going to look at 1 Peter verse 1. And if it takes as long as this, we are going to be in 1 Peter for decades to come. So in your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Hopefully... At the end of this series, it'll be the most well-thumbed, the dirtiest, the most highlighted and scribbled over uh, book in your Bible since Psalms. So it says this in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's select exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Well, what an encouraging verse. I wonder how many of you have got that on fridges in your houses 
and uh, that's kind of like your life verse that you've had at baptism or somewhere else. But there are some great riches in that that I, that I think we're going to enjoy looking at. These are the first written words of Simon the fisherman. The one when he stood up in Acts said, who is this unschooled guy that seems to speak so articulately about this Holy Spirit? He is son of Jonah and he is brother of Andrew. Do you notice that this guy Simon refers to himself not by his dad, which they often like doing, the the, uh, uh, first century Jews, not by who his dad was, not by his job, didn't even refer to the given name that his folks gave him. He calls himself the nickname that Jesus gave him. Before Jesus gave Peter the nickname Peter, Peter was not a name that you give people. But afterwards, it is. It seems that at the very start of this letter that Peter wants to write, he uses this, I am Peter. And if you are uh, familiar with scripture, that will send all sorts of thoughts racing around your mind. But his name's Simon, and he's, he's son of Jonah, and his brother's Andrew. And, oh, wait a minute, Peter's the guy that, he was called Simon, but... Jesus said to him, you're going to be Peter, you're going to be a rock, you're going to be someone that all your behaviour up to that point showed you were manifestly not. You are going to be someone that is going to be helpful to the church rather than a problem. I remember you, Peter, you're the one that Jesus transformed your life from becoming a fisher of fish to a fisher of people. I remember, Peter, that you explained Pentecost, you preached, and thousands of people gave their life to Jesus and got baptised. Yes, I remember you, Peter. It is no accident that Peter does not use his um, name that his parents gave him, but he recalls the nickname that Jesus used of him. Next, we are reminded that Peter was one of the original 12. He is not just an apostle, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. It may be, and sort of scholars argue about this, and man, there's not much in 1 Peter that scholars don't argue, and I'm, I'm trying to navigate my way through that, but it seems as if that there may be a distinction between just being an apostle and being an apostle of Christ Jesus. But, but whatever it is, we know that whose name features at the very beginning of every list of those 12 apostles. Very good, excellent. Peter has this uh, celebrity of being the first in all of those lists of apostles. Paul has to constantly defend himself. Paul, this guy who just spews words out of his mouth that sound incredibly holy and complicated and high, he has to constantly argue, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle. Please believe me, I'm an apostle. Hello, I'm Paul, I'm also an apostle. And Peter does nothing of the sort. He just goes, 
I'm Peter, Apostle, you know it, and I am it. This is exactly the sort of introduction we expect from a guy that everyone knows he is an apostle. The other guys, they go, well, are you really in that list of 12? I wonder how many of us can repeat the list of the 12 names that I read out earlier. We're like, well, there's Bartholomew was there, and there was a couple of Judases. Um, yeah, but that 12, we're not really sure. Um, someone's trying, bless you for trying. You can, you can let that go or do it silently in your mind. But Peter didn't have any of that. They were like, Peter, oh, Peter an apostle. And everyone's, yeah, of course you're an apostle. You don't have to argue that with us. And the first century church go, we know Peter. He's forms, I mean, let's be honest, some of the best stories in the New Testament. When anything can go wrong, Peter makes sure it does go wrong. And he gets rebuked and uh, he gets uh, told to go away and he denies Christ and he walks on water and he argues with Jesus. And, and it's just a, a, a very interesting chapter. And it's, it is not much of a surprise that Peter only has to go, I'm Peter and Apostle. And everyone goes, ah, yes, we know about you, buddy. Over the years, decades, and even millennium, many will be used by Jesus to preach and teach. There's lots and lots of Christians over the years that uh, have felt called by Jesus to talk to other people about Jesus. I would humbly put myself in that, though some of you were like, well, you certainly haven't been called by Jesus. I don't know who it was that had a word with you but they were wrong on that half. But over the 2,000 years of church life, there have been lots of people that have grabbed a Bible and said, listen to me, I want to tell you about Jesus. And many of them have been really helpful. However, I'm suggesting to you this morning that Peter is a little bit different from that. Peter has a certain primacy in his authority and what he has to say. Simon learned at Jesus' feet for around three years. He had supper with Jesus. He saw Jesus when Jesus was late for a meeting and how Jesus responded. Peter sat at the feet of Jesus while he sermonized, while he Um, worked to talk about the kingdom of God. Peter was selected from the many, many disciples to become an apostle. Simon, and Paul says this, that Simon Peter was the first guy to see the risen Jesus. And Peter was the first one that saw Jesus rise from from the dead And he has a certain credibility. You know, when you are an eyewitness to the risen Christ, people go, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I mean, um, sort of Francis and Tim and Barry kind of believe Jesus rose again. But if someone says, you know, I actually saw it with my own eyes, well, I'd quite like to talk to that person. And you would press into them. And this is part of Jesus, uh, part of Peter's authority. So this morning... I would lift up Peter's admission of being one of those apostles 
as important, as something that should come on your radar. Every book in your New Testament uh, scriptures is included because of a link to an apostle. Every single book in your Bible, and you might wonder, well, I think there are other books of the Bible, weren't there? Or there are other books written at the same time or slightly after. Why aren't they in? Why have we got these books and not those other ones? There's some great stories about Jesus sort of forming birds out of clay and making them fly. And I'm like, why haven't we got that in? That would make a fascinating little extension to the nativity story. But there is this very deliberate restraint on what Bibles get in, what books get in and out of the Bible. And one of the criteria is that they are associated with one of these 12 apostles, that they are associated with someone that Jesus appeared to um, that, uh, and was specially commissioned by him. And Paul kind of gets included in there, and he talks about it as one abnormally born. So this word apostle is not one just to be, oh, they're just messengers. I don't think that this technical term, apostle, can actually be applied to anyone around today. Now, I know there's different uh, denominations, and uh, Elim is friends with a denomination that loves to call its leaders apostles, and I understand that. But I think we find in here Peter's use of the term apostle and Paul's desire to be called it is a little bit more technical than someone that the church would celebrate. In about 105 AD, um, so this is um, just only a few years after all those kind of first generation Christians passed away, we have this Bishop of Antioch, Ignatius. Everyone say Ignatius. Ignatius. The Bishop of Antioch wrote in a letter to the Romans this, Pray Christ for me, that by these means I may become God's sacrifice. But I do not give you orders like Peter and Paul, for they were apostles. And it seems in this guy's mind, Ignatius, that the apostles were of a different measure of authority. That they had some, uh, they had a different level of contribution to make to the Christian communities. Jesus set these original dozen men apart to ensure that when Christians were asking, "What's the answer to this question?" that they would be particular chosen ones that had Jesus' stamp of authority and endorsement on it. They were to have that uh, particular uh, stamp of approval from Jesus. They would have a wisdom and insight and direction that it is good to preserve to generations to come. I wonder who you listen to today. I wonder what... Christians you listen to today. Some of you are listening to me, and I thank you for that. This would be a bit of a redundant meeting if you weren't. Some of us will take Christian authority if they're successful. You know, if they've hit a 
bestseller list. You know, if you put into um, Amazon Christian writer, that's going to be helpful. And the name comes up and you go, I'm just going to buy that book and then allow it to speak to me. Some of us use the wealth of Christians. You know, if they are wealthy and prominent, then perhaps they know what it takes and we will listen to what they have to say. Some of us, and I perhaps include myself in this, some of us choose the humorous speakers. You know one that makes you laugh, that puts you in ease, that don't make following Jesus like this butt-clenching agony that you're just constantly worried about whether you're going to sin. Someone that's a bit more relaxed and happy. Some of us use, well, are they educated? How many letters do they have after their name? Do they have a doctorate in this? I remember uh, uh, being at college and listening to one of my lecturers. Um, he didn't even have an English Bible in front. He just had the Greek. And then he would just translate, just as he was speaking to me at the Bible. And I was like, wow, that's, that guy's got to be near Jesus just to be able to do that. That's who I'm going to listen to. All you common people who like humorous or wealthy or successful or perhaps they're in charge of a big church forget that I want the guy that can read Greek and tell you what it means as you go let me tell you all these different ways of judging a Christian are inferior to accepting the voices that Jesus has authorized and Jesus has authorized the apostles Jesus said listen to these guys and some of us going, but they're not schooled. And Jesus says, so what? And Jesus goes, listen to these guys. And go, but they're not funny. Man, where's the comedy? And Jesus says, no, you need to listen to these guys. And some of us are like, well, they didn't get wealthy, did they? They're not successful. They're not leaders of um, sort of multi-campus churches with websites that wow your socks off. And Jesus goes, no, no, li- listen to these guys. Your criteria for judging who you should listen to and who should be your spiritual guider is invalid compared to what Jesus says we should listen to. So I want us all to dial down the Joel Olsteins, the Joyce Mayers, the Rick Warrens, the John Pipers, the Nicky Gumbles, and some of us are like, who are these guys, Kevin? I don't know. Um, and the Jared Coopers. They were like, oh, yeah, that's who we study in the uh, home groups. All these guys may have some fine things to say, but they are not apostles. They haven't been specially selected by Jesus to propagate what Jesus had to say and the miracles that he had to bring. Both Jesus and Peter knew that these original apostles and their words were critical. You can't just go, I would like to add a bit to the Bible because I'm pretty clever or my church is successful or people always say how interesting I sound. You don't get to do that. It is these apostles that have brought the flavour and form to your New Testaments. So my simple question, my simple challenge this morning before we go to the next bit is do your lives reflect that? When you nourish your uh, walk with Jesus, how do you do it? Do you go to the people 
that met Jesus, that walked with him, that saw him resurrected, that saw miracles that uh, would be difficult to believe 2,000 years later? Or would you go to the people that sound educated, that have got an easily available paperback on Amazon, or the uh, e-book is easily downloadable to your Kindle? Do you give these apostles their correct prominence in your life by the way uh, you um, have your devotionals? And so I'm going to leave that question and just ask you, do you give those apostles that Jesus thought were really important, that prayed all night to choose them, that made sure that their words would be preserved in Scripture, do you give them their appropriate recognition or do you treat them with a degree of apathy or a, uh, a, a, just a, a degree of negligence that is slightly insulting. So that's apostles. Excellent. Now we're going to deal with aliens. So apostles and aliens, that seemed quite a, a, a good title for a sermon. Um, if you can cast your mind back to Luke chapter 6... You'll remember that Jesus spoke to a lot of people on this plane. But it tells us in Scripture, or Luke tells us, Luke tells us that he looks directly at his disciples. And Jesus kind of fleshed out what it would look like to be a disciple. Some of us are going, okay, so I want to follow you, Jesus. I, want to, um, I think you've got a word of truth there. What does it mean to pursue you? And Jesus goes, well, let me tell you what it means to pursue me. What does it look like? What, what does the day-to-day experience um, hold? Well, Jesus looks him straight in the eye and goes, well, I'm afraid there'll be a bit of poverty, a bit of hunger, a bit of sadness, and a bit of exclusion. And this is why a lot of disciples got near Jesus, got excited by his miracles, loved the bits about love and joy and happiness, Heard that sort of thing goes, you know what, I think there might be some better messiahs out there that I would follow. And when Jesus asks, is uh, like this close group of apostles go, aren't you going to leave too? And they go, you know what, we're not going to go anywhere. You're the only one with these, these words of life. They may be difficult. I may not like them. I may want someone to add a little footnote saying this is only for the first century and that Christians in the 21st century can enjoy health, wealth, success and happiness. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says poverty, hunger, sadness and exclusion will often be the lot of those that follow Christ. It is quite clear that the followers of the way and that's what kind of believers were first for. I kind of like that followers of the way. It's kind of a little bit nebulous and you can like trick people into church because they're like, followers of the way? I want to know more about that. And they go, ah, oh, we're just a church really. Um, but the, so the, the Christians who are, are called followers of the way, um, they, Jesus said, would not enjoy patronage by all the richest people. They wouldn't enjoy the patronage and blessing of culture. Culture wouldn't jump up and down and go, oh, I'm so excited you follow Jesus and a Christian. Let me put you in the middle of power and authority and let you have the keys to the Bank of England because you're just the sort of person we need. 
these disciples that Jesus gathered around him, Jesus said, your allegiance and your morality will contrast with your surroundings. Your next door neighbours will look at you weirdly because of your affiliations, because of your values. And you will feel a sense of loss. If you have ever been a Christian school child, you will know the reality of this. When kids are doing all sorts of interesting, diverting things that look fascinating to get up to, and you're a Christian, you know, I can't get involved with that. It looks really interesting and stimulating, but I can't do that. And all the other bad boys and girls are filling their boots with all sorts of sin and you're like, yeah, I'm I'm different. And they exclude you and they say things about you. And this is what our kids face. And um, I pray for them because, man, it's difficult being a Christian as a child because you are thrust amongst your peers who you desperately want their approval and their friendship. And again and again... They go, I don't want to spend time with you. You don't have the same values. You obviously are going down a different path to me. And so if you've ever been a Christian kid, you'll know that sense of loss that Jesus was talking about here. Now... To begin with, Peter in verse 1, and yes, I'm afraid we're still in verse 1. Peter says, he's an apostle, that his name is Peter, or his nickname is Peter, and he says that he's writing to God's elect. Everyone say, God's elect. elect. Now, Romans 9 has Paul kind of elaborate on this. And he says, salvation isn't random. Salvation isn't God putting his hand into some sort of national lottery tumbler and going, oh, Brian's a Christian. <laughs> that was a surprise to both of us. And then he sort of work his way on from that. Uh, Peter tells us, and Paul makes it a little bit more explicit, that salvation is carefully and sovereignly designed. Before the world began, God picks people that will love him. And he does it for his own reasons and purposes. You go, well, I'm not sure I like that. And Paul answers that. So if you've got, a, some, if you've got beef with that, go and check out Romans 9 and uh, see what he has to say. Because we just ain't got time to deal with that. If you are called God's elect, if I perhaps as I should every single Sunday say, you are God's elect, you are God's elect, You are God's elect. It should do two things to your heart. It should inspire you a certain degree of assurance. If God has selected you for his own plans and purposes, you should feel a sense of reassurance. Oh, I might make it. It might be that regardless of my feelings and my ups and lows and my performance as a Christian, that God might see through that destiny to the end. If my destiny is wholly in God's hands, 
perhaps I can let some of that guilt and worry go about the direction I'm travelling. And it should also breed a certain humility because we haven't done anything to deserve this selection, this election. And we come to everyone around us not because we're better than all those pagan, heathen Gentiles out there that have watched Game of Thrones. But we know what it is to be sinners. And we know that our salvation is because God loves us rather than that our discipline is particularly impressive. This morning, I just want to say that those same feelings and that same sense should apply to us. We are God's elect. If you love Jesus and you've chosen him and and he's your man, if you believe in his resurrection, then you are God's elect. And you're not God's elect because you are really well disciplined at reading your Bible, but because God has chosen you. And there's a degree of humility that you can go out into that world and not walk with your head held high because you're better than anyone else, but you walk with that degree of humility where you can serve others because you just desperately want them to be part of the elect too. Now, so while this is a blessing of being God's elect, there's kind of a downside, and we kind of already alluded it to a bit. I'm afraid we can't expect to feel at home here. Some of us desperately want to feel at home in the world around us. You know, find our niche, find our place, find that place of complete satisfaction and um, pleasure and just uh, joy. But Jesus says, you won't find it, I'm afraid. Peter says, you, you, you won't find it. You are aliens here. Your, your citizenship is not in this place. It's not in this time and this space. I don't know whether you noticed it, but Peter writes to a load of different places. And you'll find that in, the, uh, in that episode of 1 Peter 1 verse 1. It gives you different, and they're different regions. And it seems that this letter Peter is writing is to be circulated amongst a whole bunch of churches. And it seems that this would be a common route for Deliveroo to take the, uh, the, the message that Peter had to send, or Royal Mail or whatever your favourite carrier is. And Peter says, you know what, despite you all living in different places, despite your geographical distinctions, despite your cultural distinctions, despite you guys in Bithynia and Galatia and all these different spaces, you are all God's elect and you are all aliens. You know a common citizenship, but it is not in those places you find yourselves. And you will also find a common neighbourhood hostility towards you. It might be under the surface, but there is a resentment to your behaviour, to your conduct, to your values and to your destination. People might not say it to your face, 
but they will use it in how they behave towards you. And so these scattered disciples through modern-day Turkey, they wait with bated breath for an apostle to address them, and Peter does. And Peter seems to remember Jesus' own words that we read in Luke. You know, you're not going to find yourself all comfy and at ease with your feet up in the here and now. Discomfort and alienation is inevitable. And that's the truth of it. You are wonderfully God's elect, but you're also, this is not your home. You are pilgrims, foreigners, aliens, travellers, vagabonds, moving through. (coughs) Wherever you are right now, however settled you feel, that is just a passing place on the way to your destiny. And some of you who uh, live in a homestead with the cold and the remoteness of going, thank you, Jesus, I've got a better destination. And some of you who have had new central heating installed into your house and got nice double glazing and have, you know, got that Nest thermometer which you can operate from your phone and get it to a balmy 20 degrees. You're like, oh, I don't know about that, Jesus. I'm quite comfortable here, thank you very much. But Jesus says it doesn't matter where you are, homestead or Bony Court, you're foreigners and aliens and travellers and you're moving through. And just as what Peter says in one word, Paul says in a load of words. If you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to the last uh, Bible reading and we're just going to sort of uh, end in a moment. If you want some sort of final carrot to look at scripture. Um, It says this in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 15. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears... Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Everyone say heaven. Heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him will bring everything under his control and will transform our lowly, creaky, mentally ill, arthritic, bunion-strewn, walk-covered bodies. That's in the amplified version, if you've got it. Um, So that they will be like his glorious body. I am drawing to an end. But do you notice... Right at the beginning of this wonderful little passage of Paul, that Paul's dealing with people that disagree with him. Um, The people that would argue with the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul goes, you want to argue with me? That's fine. But it's obviously you're immature and God will convince you otherwise. There is this wonderful sense of authority that Paul has. says, yeah, you may 
want to second-guess me. You may want to criticise me, and that's fine, but that obviously means you're immature and God will change your mind anyway. That is the authority and sense of assurance that Paul has in his teaching. And, uh, and I, I think that's probably, and I think that's true for all these apostles, these um, uh, originally designated by Jesus as to carry on his message. You may disagree with the apostles, and that's fine, but you are immature, and God will sort you out in the end. Anyway, Paul it reiterates that we are, as citizens of heaven, we're to cultivate different appetites. What our neighbours want in their life is for them, but it doesn't lead in anywhere nice. We have the responsibility and duty and privilege to cultivate different appetites. And these different appetites, they don't get satisfied now. These things that you desperately want as a Christian, they don't get fully satisfied now. You have to wait to heaven. And there, it will be like slipping into a hot sauna. And you'll be like, oh, this is more like it. My goodness, I've been waiting this all my life. My bones have been aching, and now I'm here. But you don't get that pleasure till eternity. Some of you are satisfied with that. You know, I'd really like my temperature to be up to 20 degrees and some double glazing. And then they get satisfied, and you're like, there, life's done. And Jesus and Paul and Peter say, no, no, you're supposed to cultivate different appetites. Ones that will be answered in heaven. That sort of closeness and communion with your heavenly father. You and I are elect exiles. We are loved and we are to live differently in a place that we will never get comfortable We can never get comfortable here because it is not our home. And so I just ask us this morning as I close, let us us listen to these God-given, Jesus prayed all night to choose them apostles. And let's embrace our status as aliens. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you that you chose him peculiarly to do something remarkable for you. Lord God, we thank you that he wrote to the Christians in these different areas with wisdom and advice. And Lord God, I thank you that his wisdom and advice was seen fit to be preserved for our nourishment. Lord God, I pray simply um, today that we would have the highest of high regard for the apostles you chose and that we would devour their teaching more than anything else. And Lord God, I pray that we would learn to live as God's elect, which are aliens in this place, that this is not our home. Lord God, I, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.